Hello and what's up? My name is Anwar and I am on faculty at Emory uh, University in Atlanta, Georgia. And welcome to the first episode of Mecca in the Streets. Uh, this podcast is the brainchild of uh, my colleague here, a resident named uh, Ameka Egbike. And um, we'll tell you a little bit more about it in just a second, but these uh, shows are probably going to be about four or five of them. And we're going to talk about some of the social determinants of health from the lens of an individual uh, person that uh, Ameka had a conversation with. So uh, let me get this straight, Ameka. Uh, your last name is Abige, but but ha- have I been saying it wrong the whole time? Uh, a little bit, yes, Abwebike, uh, but uh, you're close enough. <laughs> I'm also joined here by my colleague, Basan Sali. Um, and, uh, you can tell us a little bit about yourself, but I mean, have, have I been saying your last name wrong also the whole time? Uh, no, the, uh, the last name is fine. It's Bissan though. <laughs> so Emeka, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, like where you're from and why you came to Atlanta? Sure. Um, so, uh, I grew up in New Jersey. Uh, I went to med school in uh, the University of Miami where I got both my uh, MD and MPH. Um, I came to Atlanta mainly because I love the diversity here in Atlanta. Uh, I wanted to spend some time with my family here in Atlanta as well. Um, I feel like there's a lot of opportunity here, both to get involved with the community and to get a great uh, training at Emory EM. Okay, all right, Missan. So, I mean, how did you get here? You know, I, um, like uh, Emeka, came down to Atlanta partly because, um, or largely because I was really drawn to um, Grady and its mission and population. And I think that after sort of doing residency and um, staying on as faculty, one of the things that I really noticed is, um, you know, that taking care of patients in the ED can make you very frustrated very quickly. And largely, I think that that's because that in the clinical encounter, we're really taught to focus on what's an emergency, what's going on right now. And people's problems tend to be so much bigger than that. And I think you can do sort of one of two things. Uh, One is uh, to feel really defeated by people's problems. um, And the other is to ignore them and to blame patients themselves. And to me, that really felt like um, very frustrating and very... um, Futile, and I was really I I thought okay I really needed a bigger framework to think about these issues that I was seeing on a day to day basis, but my medical training really didn't equip me to to look at. And at the time, it, there wasn't really a big emphasis on social determinants of health um, like there is uh, right now. And so that was what inspired me to go back uh, to school to get a PhD in uh, medical anthropology. So. Let me get this straight. You got your PhD while working as a faculty. Yes, p- part-time faculty, yes. <laughs> I mean, that, that sounds like a lot of work. Well, that's the nice thing about emergency medicine is it's shift-based. So, you know, you can tail, tailor up and down as needed, but it was a lot of work, and I'm glad it's done. <laughs> okay, so Emeka, can you tell us about how uh, and why you came up with the idea to do this project? Sure. Um, so... I felt, at least uh, in my training that I got so far, that uh, there is definitely room for a more focus on the social determinants of health. Uh, I felt that, like we just discussed, that in the ER, we're very focused on the acute problem uh, of the patient, and there's so much more uh, 
that there is to be done. Uh, so I wanted to uh, get to know the community that I serve. Uh, I find that puts meaning to what I do both in the ER and my work outside into the community. Okay, well, how did you determine that the way to do that was to talk to the people outside of the ER? So uh, if talking to people inside of the ER, we're very focused on their medical acute complaints. Um, bringing the conversation outside of the ER allows us to discuss, okay, so what, um, you know, what, what are these factors that are preventing you from doing whatever? Um, what, uh, other than your acute medical issues, uh, can we focus on that could better your status, your, your life? If I could add to that, I think one of the things that's really powerful about what you did was that one of the things I wish I did was to have the time to just let people sort of lead me into the direction that's important to them, that I had the time to just listen uh, to their stories. Um, yeah, I mean, you certainly don't have time to do that in the ER, right? We certainly don't. And I think the fact of taking it onto their turf and allowing them to really dictate the conversation is a really important one. We had about four interviews uh, and, you know, obviously they're all anonymous uh, and, you know, it counts as journalism. So it's IRB exempt. Uh, so perhaps, Emeka, could you tell us a little bit about the first gentleman that you had a chance to sit down with? The first gentleman, a uh, very nice gentleman, uh, I met at a park bench uh, outside of the train station. Uh, very well kept, um, great conversation. Uh, talked a lot about how he transitioned from living in the Midwest down here. Um, and also he discussed how drug abuse has affected his life. Um, again, very well kept. Uh, number of different uh, chronic medical uh, conditions. Uh, his... His, his, his legs were um, pretty swollen, uh, bandaged all around, but uh, overall uh, had a great experience. So how exactly did you initiate this conversation? So the same way that I initiated most of the conversations, uh, I went around Atlanta, uh, I was carrying some water, some Gatorades, very hot day. So I would approach people no matter whether uh, you know, they were well caps, uh, whether they looked disheveled, no matter what their appearance was, offered some of them water, uh, discussed their current housing situation, uh, identified them as what we'd consider homeless or transitioning between housing, uh, and then initiated a conversation by there, um, by sitting down and having a uh, drink with them. So for this first gentleman, uh, what was the overall impression about how or why he ended up in this situation of unstable housing? So he got into a, um, a known altercation with his family up in the Midwest uh, that caused him to lose uh, his housing there. He had lost his job. Um, he didn't really go into the details of that. He moved down to Atlanta to get a new start for himself. It's been about four years ago. Four years ago, okay. And you mind if I ask what happened four years ago? I'm doing good, had my own place. Okay. It just met the girl. Thought I was, thought I was the shit. Okay. <laughs> so I started going great with her. Okay. Um, but uh, things uh, for him weren't going his way. He ended up uh, falling into. Um, you know, cocaine abuse, crack abuse. Uh, he ended up living with his sister. He's currently living on the couch with his sister. So, Basin, 
What, what exactly do we know about uh, housing insecurity and the relationship between cocaine or other drugs of abuse? Um, what we know is that it's a very, very complicated relationship. Um, I will tell you sort of shorthand, the, the common narrative that is told is that people um, get into, dr- start using drugs, um, they become addicted to drugs, they spiral out of control, and they become so focused um, on the drugs that they're unable to maintain their relationships, they're unable to maintain their jobs, and as a result, they lose their jobs, they lose their housing, and they end up on the street because of this sort of um, overwhelming consumption with the drug. What we know in reality is that the truth is much more complicated than that. So the um, idea of kind of uh, of using drugs and unstable uh, the history of unstable housing really and homelessness goes back. Um, to really the beginnings of the history with in the United States. Um, and poverty and specifically homelessness actually precede um, the crack epidemic and the cocaine epidemic of the 1980s, but because they co-occurred at the same time, it was very easy to sort of draw a straight line between the two. What I think we know from kind of all of like the, the data across disciplines is that often there's no drug in which you use it once that you're going to become just so overwhelmingly consumed that you give up your life um, and spiral completely out of control. In fact, people's sort of relationships with the drugs tend to be predetermined um, often by sort of their, um, their other social conditions. So their, um, their, the stability of their jobs, the stability of their housing, um, their, you know, their, um, predisposition to policing. So what we know, for example, is, um, that people who are affluent and white tend to use drugs at the same or um, potentially higher rates, uh, than people who are poor and or black in the United States. Yet what is disproportionate is the, um, consequences of the using of those drugs. So the policing, um, the, um, you know, being um, potentially evicted from your housing, the consequences of that are much greater for people who are disenfranchised in the United States. So what you're really describing is almost exactly what he is talking about. Um, if I can draw sort of a, a counter argument, for example, the, um, you know, there's, um, are times when we talk about addiction sort of amongst doctors, for example, and people really being, um, uh, like having sort of problems sort of, um, with, uh, drug and substance abuse in the medical community. If you think about how, um, physicians are approached when they sort of show, um, issue like those issues, often they are, um, supported. They have, um, they have people around them. They have usually like the, um, the socioeconomic resources and the buffer such that they can actually get treatment without losing everything as opposed to some. And I think the bigger issue kind of ending up on the street is really what kind of a buffer do you have? And are people who are around you willing and or able to actually rally around you in order to help you and connect with you to get you over sort of this problem that you're having? He even talks about how he lost his job and suffered uh, a bunch of consequences from this. What did you find out about how he accesses resources in the community? So this particular gentleman actually said that, uh, again, he he doesn't go to the doctor. Um, He kind of lives to himself. Um, He essentially went to the hospital just to get, uh, he actually went to the hospital to get some resources in terms of, 
alcohol abuse, drug abuse, um, but has not been able to reach out to these resources for a, a number of, of different reasons. Um, for what? For anything. Mm. I try not to. Try not to. I try not to. Okay. And does he use the hospital in what we would consider as a safety net way or like a way where pretty much everybody uses the ER in the same way? What did you learn from talking to him about that? No, not at all. He actually said he's been to the emergency department once. Um, he was having severe pain into his leg. Uh, hospital treated him very well. Uh, he was let go. Uh, he's never been back to the ER. So, Basan. I mean, can you explain this like disconnect between like the stereotypes that are out there for uh, homeless patients and what this gentleman is experiencing? Um, I think there's a few things to kind of unpack there. Uh, the first, I think, big stereotype is we talk about um, people who are homeless as if they're a specific type of person who is predisposed to either being on the street, being disheveled, being um, drug addicted. I think what's really important to think about is the fact that homelessness is an experience and one that most people actually cycle in and out of during particularly difficult periods of their time. And so the people that sort of um, prototype of um, the person who is chronically living on the street really represents only a very small um, minority of people who are experiencing homelessness. Mm -hmm. And I think that a lot of people who are actually cycling in and out of homelessness are very aware of that, um, of that trope of and the stigma that is associated with it. And so, for example, um, Emeka mentioned that um, the gentleman that he was talking to was um, very well well dressed. And sort of during my field work, what I noticed was that a lot of people went um, out of their way to really distance themselves from the image of what it means to be, um, to look homeless um, and all of the stigma that's associated with it because they didn't want people sort of treating them any differently. Now, one of the stigmas that's associated with kind of looking homeless or being homeless is that you are um, kind of lazy or leeching off the system. Um, and I think that that goes to sort of the idea of kind of being the frequent flyer, so to speak. I, you know, I use that term in square, scare quotes. But the idea is, is that you're really leeching off of the system, that any um, quote unquote freebie you can get going to the emergency department, getting a sandwich, you're going to um, really jump on that. And what people forget in those stereotypes is that being homeless is really um, a full-time job, that there is a lot that one has to do to get by from day to day, as particularly in Atlanta when you're kind of walking around, oh, getting yeah. food, doing all of these things. I mean, like, have you ever tried to get like a driver's license or a car registration in Atlanta? <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. It's yeah. a not, it's so difficult. Uh, and then like add to that sort of try and get your housing for the day, all of these other things that are very, very time and labor intensive um, and so, in fact, that those things tend to take precedence. And typically what happens is that um, a lot of homeless people, um, from the data that's available, will actually delay seeking care until it's absolutely necessary rather than sort of going to the hospital for, quote unquote, frivolous complaints like the popular stereotypes. So. so what do you think could be done about housing insecurity and homelessness? And, and what, what, did, what did he think about this situation? So the, the problem or solution, or sorry, the problem that uh, he thought that he was facing is that he just didn't have um, the support or motivation before to access these resources to 
um, go through with this program uh, in terms of drug abuse rehab and counseling. Um, but the big thing that made a difference in his life is when he started living with his sister, albeit he's living in the couch with his, uh, in his sister's place, uh, she provided that sort of support uh, that he needed to start, okay, let me you know, get dressed, let me go out, let me uh, try to meet some people by this uh, train station, let me try to um, better my life. Um, let me stop doing drugs. Um, so that moral support that the, the sister uh, provided really helped him out there. So finally, Basan, to kind of wrap up, I mean, how do we contextualize this one person's experience? And you know, don't get me wrong, I don't think that homelessness is just one thing. But how do we put this in the broader picture of what we can do as providers and as uh, fellow citizens? You know, I think that one of the things, um, I, I completely agree with what you said. I think it's a great observation that homelessness isn't one thing and therefore the solution just isn't one thing. Um, and in fact, sometimes it's many things at once. And I think that one of the, th I think it's very, very important to sort of the housing first model in which we say like, let's actually provide um, available, afford affordable, um, supportive housing is extremely important. I think one of the things that we should also realize, though, is that um, people who um, are homeless are just as complicated and have exactly this um, many of the same needs that we have kind of in our own lives. In addition, kind of shelter, one of the th um, they also sort of need to feel. Um, loved and cared for and supported and connected. And so ha just sort of putting somebody in a house and saying, okay, here's a house, like, see you later. It's not enough. And so I really like, there's a journalist, um, author named Johan Hari, who has this really, um, powerful tagline where he says that, um, the opposite of, um, addiction isn't sobriety, it's connection. And I think that, um, that sort of goes to the whole idea of thinking about both drug use and housing. And really what we need to do is kind of be um, more supportive, equitable, and inclusive of everybody in our society. When we kind of talk about um, social order and um, inequality, that that sort of needs to be a very inclusive sort of, um, that we really need to kind of be inclusive of people in that. And so we need to be supportive in both our social structures, in the way that we speak to people, in the way that we connect with them. Um, and in the and the material resources that we provide for them. And so those are sort of really things that go um, hand in hand with one another. I mean, there were a lot of insights here, man. And thank you guys so much for taking the time to drop by my office slash uh, recording studio. And um, I'm really looking forward to the next time we get together. And we'll meet up soon for another one of these episodes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Dad.